Hey everyone, my name is Hannah, and this is the Remain Faithful Podcast. Today, we are going to be looking at the story of Noah and the flood, talking about what flooding accomplishes in our lives, and how we can endure with hope when trials and tribulations rush in. Thank you so much for being here, and let's get started. Hello everyone, and good morning. Well, it's morning when I'm recording this. It is 5.45 Mountain Time, and it is my joy and honor to welcome you to another episode of the Remain Faithful podcast. If you're listening to this, it can only mean one thing, and that is that you are someone in my life who genuinely, and I mean genuinely, cares about me as a person. You know me personally. We're probably really good friends, and... I'm not going to mince words, you know, I'm just going to jump straight in. We're going to get right to the meat of this episode because I just want to speak real and true from my heart and from what the Lord has been teaching me, where I've been, and the lessons that I have learned throughout the past several months. And I just want to share what the Holy Spirit has revealed to me to you. So without further ado, we're just diving straight in. Today, we're going to be talking about flooding. Oh my goodness. So when I say flooding, you're probably thinking immediately Noah's Ark. Yes, you're absolutely right. We're going to be going a little bit there, but we're also going to be talking about some other things that I think are going to be really enriching or at least have been really enriching for me. So let's get straight to it, baby. I have this joke or it's not really a joke. It's an observation that I have hard learned across the course of my short life so far. And it is that I seem to reinvent myself every 18 months. Every year and a half, I come up with a completely new personality, things that I like, things that I'm doing, things that I'm interested in. My personhood is constantly evolving and I find that it operates on an 18 month cycle. Now, don't ask me how I figured this out. Don't ask me my scientific data because I don't have any. It's genuinely just, oh yeah, I'm really different now than I was then. And When I look back on where I was a year ago, my goodness, if I am not an entirely different woman now. And I think one of the hard things that I have to reconcile here is that the changes that have been made are not all positive. It wasn't all good stuff. It wasn't all strawberries and sugar and sunshine and joy. It's been a lot of damage and heartache and loss and grief that have changed me in ways that I didn't expect. This ground that I've been sowing has been hard. These tears have been cold and these nights have been long. The harvest that was supposed to last for the winter felt like maybe, maybe two or three cherry tomatoes that were squishy and that raccoons just carried off all the rest. It's been a tough, unrelenting time and I am confident that so many of us have walked through this reality. I'm at a point in my life where I understand why so many cultures have deities specifically responsible for fertility and harvest, because after a dry spell like this, I know how desperate people pray for rain. And the hard truth is that that is just the reality of living in a broken world. We have gone through unprecedented times. Everyone's been saying that, but it has been a hard two years. I'm gonna say it, it's been a hard two years. And We are not promised as Christians that life is somehow expected to get better after this, right? Coronavirus and everything that has come with it has been difficult, but are honestly subject to continuation because the Lord promises, Jesus told us that we would have suffering on this earth. And my goodness, 
I know a thing or two about suffering these days. But that's just the reality, right? Seasons of strawberries and sunshine and seasons of unrelenting floods that sweep away all the crop and ruin the soil after erosion. So with all that being said, there's three directions that I want to talk about this in. The first is the biblical truth that we find in Genesis. The second is observation about flooding from my homeland in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And then the third is really just what we do, what we do with this information. So we're going to be going straight in. This is a classic story. Um, Noah's Ark and the Flood is probably the first story we get taught in Sunday school when we're, you know, four years old and we're coloring rainbows and we have little animals that we make and we eat animal crackers that morning. This is something that is deeply ingrained in so many of us. And now that we're getting older, at least now that I'm getting older, I'm finding, you know, theologically, this has a lot of contention surrounding it about how we take this story with scientific truth and biblical truth and what that means and yada yada. And we're not going to be talking about any of that today, even though, you know, I'm deeply interested in it. We're going to just be talking strictly about the story at hand. There was a period of my life some time ago where I spent a lot of time studying Genesis. And during this study time, I came across an interpretation of why God had to enact this flood. And it's one of those things that while you're studying scripture, just really stick with you. And this has stuck with me for the entirety of the time since then. And it's been probably two years. So we know that God had to send this flood because it says very clearly, this is Genesis chapter six, verse five. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and he was deeply grieved. Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Now, this is really the jumping off point for the story of Noah, but if you back up a few verses, the beginning of chapter 6, what we see in verse 2, it is that the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth both in those days. And this is really fascinating. So the Nephilim were a race of people who were unusually large and strong and they lived before the flood. And so it's genuinely agreed upon that the Nephilim were just a race of giants. Now, what's not agreed upon is exactly what they were, but based on my study and my interpretation, I personally think that if we look at verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful. They took any they chose as wives for themselves. That the Nephilim are the offspring of the sons of God, meaning fallen angels and human women. That's not entirely agreed upon across all theologians, so look into that for yourself. But that's what I think. And so one of the things that I learned while studying Genesis was that the necessity for God to create this flood came from this creation of this race, these Nephilim, and that it was essential that there was still a pure bloodline 
for Jesus to come through that wasn't corrupted with um, blood of the sons of God or blood of the Nephilim. So God had to find people or find a person who would be able to carry the line forward and be of pure human blood so that Jesus would actually have um, a patriarch from this time. And he does, right? Noah is in the genealogy of Jesus. So absolutely fascinating piece of theology for you to think about but we're just gonna go we're gonna go past that now that was just for fun that was just a tater tot of information and everyone who has ever listened to the remain faithful podcast knows that it would not be the remain faithful podcast without some random piece of theology amen amen and amen and amen okay we're going on and so okay we're gonna abbreviate the story so the earth was flooded with human wickedness and god had to obliterate it he said i'm wiping out these people they're no good And so he tells Noah, build an ark for you and your family and for all of the animals to go in. Noah builds the ark and then it starts to rain. That's the general back burner of the story. But what is really interesting that comes after the creation of the ark, after it starts to rain, is how long Noah and his family actually spend on this vessel. Now, this is also a point that is not entirely agreed upon, but it is said that they spent anywhere from 364 to 378 days on that ship. That is a long time. I don't have to tell you that. And I think that this is so important because it's one of the aspects of the story that gets skipped over. We focus on the flood, Noah's faith in building the ark, God's goodness and saving his family and, you know, regenerating the earth and the rainbow. But we tend to not take too much time to look at the fact that they spent a year floating desolate in the storm on the floodwaters without any dry land anywhere. But eventually the dry land does show up. And so this is Genesis chapter 8, verse 8. And it says, Then he sent out a dove to see whether the water on the earth's surface had gone down. But the dove found no resting place for its foot. It returned to him in the ark because water covered the surface of the whole earth. He reached out and brought it into the ark himself. So Noah waited more days and sent out the dove from the ark again. When the dove came to him at evening, there was a plucked olive leaf in its beak. So Noah knew that the water on the earth's surface had gone down. This is really fascinating also. It says that Noah sent out the dove and the dove found nothing. And so Noah waited a few days and then sent it out again. But in the time that the dove had not recovered any evidence and the time that it found the olive leaf, it was only seven more days. It was only if it was only a week apart. And this gives me so much hope about how God can restore things far faster than we even imagine. If you think about an olive leaf coming from an olive tree, what size a tree would need to be to be able to produce a leaf for a bird to be able to find and pluck and bring, that's not a necessarily quick growing plant, right? That's not something that just happens overnight. And yet in this passage, it does. It seems to happen that rapidly. And that gives me so much hope for how God can just turn things around just like that. And so now we know how the story ends. Noah and his family come out of the ark. Noah builds an altar to the Lord. He offers an offering and then God promises to never flood the earth again and sends the rainbow as evidence of his promise. 
it is genuinely one of those stories that highlights in full technicolor the goodness of God and how he is willing to restore and pursue his people no matter how wicked they are and just to continue to reestablish and confirm and bring us back to him even after periods of wickedness. It's such a beautiful story. It shows God's heart with such clarity and it is one of those things that brings us hope for how we can continue to grow as followers of Christ. But that doesn't change the fact that Noah and his family spent a year in that ark. And I'm imagining this as probably one of the most miserable things a person can endure, right? We all locked down for coronavirus in 2020 for a couple months. And maybe depending on where you live, you locked down for longer than that. But imagine a lockdown at sea with a bunch of animals. It's probably dark and cold and wet. And they did that for a year. And this provides us full evidence that seasons of suffering can sometimes be really long. There is evidence of long suffering throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. We see it here. We see it in the Exodus into the desert. We see it in the Babylonian exile. And that's just a couple of examples. But the point here is that God shows us in his Old Testament, in his stories, that we are not promised seasons of short suffering. It is not just going to be a quick in and out bout of drought. No, no. If God intends us to suffer for sanctification purposes, it is probably going to take quite a while. And I feel deeply passionate about saying this because we are constantly being screamed at by a culture that promises quick turnover. We are people in this Western world that are gripped by instant gratification. We don't want to be miserable. We don't want to suffer. We want to get things over with. We want to get in and out and be done. We want our things fast. We want our lines short. We want everything quick so we can move on to the next thing. And the Bible shows us that if there is something we have to go through, it's going to take however long God wants it to take. All right? And that, my friends, is not going to make you very fun at a party. People don't want to hear that. People don't want to hear that they might have to suffer for a long time. That it's not going to be quick and easy to get long-lasting sanctification results. But God tells it to us in this word, and so it's important for us to meditate on that fact. So the two main points from the Noah's Ark part of this podcast is, one, floods can take a long time time if your life is being flooded there is great potential that it will be a long time until the rain stops and number two is that floods are designed to take away the old this story shows us that through this process god is cleaning out he is washing away he is getting rid of wickedness and things that did not need to be present on the earth he is purifying he is cleaning up the earth through this process and when your life becomes flooded with various trials there is a high possibility that that is also what he is doing for you and so that is devastating because we don't want things to be washed away it's uncomfortable we have to sit in the dark rainy cold damp ark but it's good and it's necessary okay groovy baby so that's the first flood motif the second is a little bit closer to home and it is about the river that runs through new mexico so 
clocking in as the fourth longest river in the United States. The Rio Grande runs from Colorado through New Mexico on the border of Texas and into Mexico, and it is the supply for the majority of New Mexico's water. Our life here in the state has centered around it. It has provided nourishment and crop yields for New Mexicans for thousands of years, and right here in Albuquerque, we are privileged and blessed to get to live by what is called the Rio Grande Bosque Ecosystem, which if you look up bosque on the internet and you find yourself on yourdictionary.com is defined as chiefly southwest, which is absolutely true. It is a pretty rare and special riparian ecosystem. And bosque is Spanish for forest, and it just means a clump or grove of trees. And trees here is really important because the most essential part of the bosque that really keeps the ecosystem alive and roots it and provides for all the other organisms that are in the forest are what we lovingly call the cottonwood trees. These are massive trees that are situated alongside the river. They are a New Mexican staple. Their leaves are beautiful and they're big and they have this kind of plasticky, waxy look to them and they have become a symbol for a lot of businesses, a lot of branding. Um, cottonwood trees, when they flower, they um, look like it's raining cotton from the sky. Spring is so exciting here in New Mexico and I can't wait for it, but they are something that is absolutely integral to our home here in Albuquerque. Now, cottonwood trees are unique because they absolutely rely and are completely dependent on what is called overbank flooding. This occurs when water from melting off from snow caps or from abundant rainfall comes outside of the riverbank and runs onto what is called the floodplain, so the area outside of the river where there is vegetation and animal life. Now, you wouldn't immediately think that this is a good thing, right? You wouldn't think that a tree population would want this to happen, but it absolutely does. And so the seasonal flooding is what makes reproduction of the cottonwood tree possible because the seedlings are dispersed through the water and they take root in that really moist soil that is able to nourish them and help them grow into full adult trees. Now, without flooding, new seedlings can't take root and survive to adulthood. It's devastating, but if you look out at our bosque right now, there are a lot of trees, but they're all really old because they're from the 1940s, which was the last major flood event in the city. Our river is controlled, like all other urbanized rivers in the world, by a heavy system of aqueducts and dams that have changed the flood patterns. And now the Bosque ecosystem, because there is no overbank flooding happening, like I said, the last one was, oh my gosh, 80 years ago, the ecosystem is now dying and heavily endangered. And so the cottonwood trees are all falling by the wayside and there's no new growth coming up. And so what we really need here in New Mexico is a flood. Like I said previously, we do not immediately connect the need for flooding as an essential part of ecosystem health, but it absolutely is. And the reality is all rivers are like this. 
we are just too urbanized and too removed from nature to understand that this is a good and essential and beautiful thing that happens. People like to settle by rivers. All of human history occurs around rivers because they allow for agriculture and for water access and all of the things that make life possible. If you want to have life, you have to have water, and so people go where the water is. But as time has gone on, we have, as an urbanized society, found ways to control the river and to make it suitable to our needs so we're not having disastrous flooding events that are ruining our settlements and our buildings. But that has come at the cost of completely destroying natural flood behavior across almost all of the United States. This is not special to New Mexico, but what is special are our cottonwood trees that are not coming back. And so there would be an absolute parade thrown down our central street if the Rio Grande started to flood. Because it's a dry river right now and dang sis, I feel you, okay? I relate, okay? I relate. The point of this, the point of what I'm saying here is that this part of a flood image, as opposed to Noah's Ark flood, that was a washing away, a destructive flood that took things out, this is an image that brings the concept that flooding also gives life. Flooding is an avenue for new growth. It is an avenue for a fresh start, for brand new beginnings, and for ways that God can continue to step into our life, plant seedlings, and allow them to grow through those floodwaters into mature adult trees. Both of these interpretations of floods are good and show the mercy of God to wash out the old and prepare the way for the new, but that does not mean it's easy. You lose things in floods. It's painful. Hard truths are washed to the surface with the raging waters. And I bet if we're honest, Noah and his family were probably chomping at the bit for it to end. And all of us here in New Mexico are waiting so expectantly for the next flood event that will pave the way for our trees to grow. Great, so here we are. We have two images of what floods can do as a way to clear out the old, bring in the new, understanding that all of it is hard, all of it is difficult and painful. And so we're gonna end this episode with what I like to call how to survive flood season. Oh my goodness. Now, I've actually researched real flooding advice on what you should do if you find yourself in a flash flood. Now, flash flooding, let me say this, this is not biblical counsel, this is life counsel. Flash floods are dangerous. So if you have never been told to stay away from flash floods, here is your PSA, baby. Do not mess around flash floods, they are dangerous. And if you look into the logistics of flash flooding, it is said that it only requires six inches of moving water for a person to lose their balance and be swept away on foot, and it only requires 12 inches of water, rushing water, for a car to lose traction with the ground and start being carried by the water. So it does not take a lot of water to displace you. The currents can be really, really strong, and it is essential that you know what to do when a flood happens so that you can stay as safe as you possibly can and protect your family. So what do you do in a flash flooding incident? Well, 
The first thing is to understand what you're going to do before a flood even happens. So point number one is get insurance. This is a real life tip. Make sure you have insurance that protects your home, your cars, anything that could potentially be damaged by flood water if you live in a high flood risk area and truthfully just get insurance for everything even if you don't live in a high flood risk area. But to extend the metaphor to our spiritual life, when flooding starts and when those waters begin crashing and the waves start to roar around you and trials and tribulations set in in your life, you want to be ready. And that starts with getting ready before the first drop of rain even falls. Insurance is commonly defined as something you don't need until you really need it and then you're glad you have it. And so two practical ways that you can build some insurance before a flood ever happens in your life. The first is to memorize scripture and to memorize a lot of it. One of the things that I found in my life is that I have a propensity to memorize scripture that is not necessarily um, focused on trials, not necessarily focused on tribulation, those really hard lamenting psalms or parts of Ecclesiastes or Job that are filled with sorrow. I typically don't memorize those things, but I've learned over the past little while in my life that the best time to memorize those things are when you are living in joy and in the promise, not necessarily when you're living in the flood, because when the water starts to rush in, you want to have that resource already accessible in your heart so that the Holy Spirit can comfort you and guide you through those moments of deep sorrow. And you don't want to feel like you're floundering without any um, grounding in the Bible. So get some grounding before it starts to rain. And the second, and this is a piece of advice I really wish someone would have given me, so I'm going to give it to you. The insurance that you need to protect yourself before flooding starts is learning how to lament. It turns out that lamenting is honestly one of the only ways through trial. It's one of the only things that's going to bring you peace, draw you closer to God instead of away, give you hope and faith instead of doubt and anxiety. But it's not easy, right? It's not something that is natural. I didn't find, maybe maybe you're different, but for me, it was really hard to figure out how to do it. So my advice is to practice your lament before you really, really have to start lamenting things that are deeply grieving you. I've come to find that like so many other things in my walk with the Lord, scripture memorizing, prayer, quiet time, gospel presentations, all of these other things. Lament is a skill and you can improve it over time. So now maybe you're in a season of joy, practice lamenting things, figure out how you were able to bring your grievances to God and find hope and refuge in this process of lament. And if you are in a flood right now, maybe let's get in those Psalms and let's get in that literature that is gonna help us see the goodness of God, even though we're floating on the ark. So the piece of advice about the insurance that is mainly for before flooding happens, but of course, 
once the flood is here, still memorize your scriptures, still practice your lament, do these things that are going to draw you closer to the Lord. But my second tip is specifically about when the waters start to rush in, and it is that you should move to higher ground. This is true. If you find yourself in a flood, you want to find the highest ground possible. And likewise, when trials set in in your life, you want to move as quickly as you can to a position of dry, high ground. What does that mean? What does that look like? It looks like plugging in even deeper with people that care about you, with your community group, with your Bible study, with your accountability partner, with your mentor, whoever cares about you and it is pouring into your life as a Christian, get in deeper with them. Don't hide what you're going through from the people that love you. I tried that. It made things worse. And I'm telling you now, don't do that. Be honest. Be honest about where you are. Be honest about what attacks are being formed against you. And involve people in this so that you aren't alone. Move to high ground also looks like understanding that in times of suffering and trial, you are going to need to be closer to the Lord and spend more time in prayer and scripture than you probably did when you were in a season of harvest and plenty. You can't neglect this. It is so tempting to believe that you are too tired, you're too exhausted, you're too emotionally burdened to spend time with the Lord. But hear me say clearly that if you are burdened, you have to go to the one who can carry that burden for you. Do not believe the lie that just because you are suffering, you can skimp on your study. You can't. You have to go in deeper. So move to that high ground. Find that place of worship in the water. Find that place of joy in the rain and get up higher. Get up out of the water, but also move to higher ground and get closer to the Lord. The third piece of advice, now this is the most important advice for real-time flash flood advice, and that is you should never, ever, and I mean never, drive in a flash flood. Like I said, it only takes 12 inches of water, and the National Weather Service's motto for flash flooding is turn around, don't drown. What does this mean for us in terms of a practical application for trials? It means that you need to get through your head that you are not the exception. Okay, what do I mean by that? I mean that when people are in flash flooding events, they often think to themselves, no, no, I'll be fine. I'll just drive. I'll go through that ditch. There's a flash flooding warning, but I'll be okay. Or I really have to get where I'm going. I have to get there on time. I can't be stopped because of this. I have to keep driving. And these mindsets are precisely what cause people to lose their life in flash flooding because they're not the exception. The water is going to sweep under their car no matter how good of a driver they are, no matter if they think that they're gonna miss the flood or it's not gonna come when they're driving through that section. These attitudes are what create fatalities because they underestimate the power of the flood water. And likewise, 
This is something I wish someone would have told me. Do not underestimate the power of the trial to uproot you and to pull you away from where you have been. Most recently, I found myself in a rather devastating situation, but it wasn't a situation that had never happened to me before. It was something that I had lived through and something that the Lord had counseled me through and brought me through in previous points in my life. And so going into this new iteration of the trial, I remember thinking to myself, no, I'll be fine. I've done this before. And that was really faulty thinking on my part. Simply put, I underestimated the power of the trial to knock me over. And consequently, I overestimated my own ability to get through it. I saw six inches of water and thought, no, no, I'll be fine. I can walk through that. It's just six inches. I'll be okay. And turns out, well, just like the water said it could do, I was swept away. So the point here is that you cannot rely on yourself, okay? You cannot rely on your own sufficiency. And this is one of the points about modern culture that really creates a sticking point with Christianity, right? We are bombarded with concepts of self-improvement and self-amelioration and productivity and doing more and becoming more and always finding your higher self and be becoming your best self and being quote that girl or that guy who everyone wants to be but the reality is when you walk through a trial the only thing you can depend on to get you through that trial is the lord himself I almost put on this list, found a way to create a metaphor for, quote, find a way to swim well or learn how to swim really good, but that completely defeats the purpose of what a trial is going to do for you, right? You don't want to become reliant on your self-sufficiency. You don't want to rely on your own abilities. You want to have to put your entire trust and your whole heart in the hands of God to get you through because that is how you become more like Christ. That is how sanctification happens and that is the purpose of the trial. So don't drive in a flash flood. Sit and wait it out. Sit with the Lord trust god to get you out turn around don't drown don't get out of your car and don't walk around stay with the lord stay with what he's trying to teach you statistics show that people who in flash floods stay with their car and do not abandon their car to swim on their own have a much higher likelihood of surviving so stay with the lord stay rooted don't run off and try to fix yourself. Let the Lord fix you. And the fourth and final tip is find still water. If you're in a flash flood and you somehow end up outside of your car, you get thrown out, you get tossed away, and you find yourself swimming, it is really important to locate water that is still water that's not moving, water that is potentially secluded from the rest of the current, and to get in that water and to stay there. This is kind of like point three, but it's the most essential point that I'm going to make today, and it is that when you find yourself in the water, search for stillness. 
It is uncomfortable to be still when you're in pain. I know that. It is hard to sit with the feelings that you want more than anything to go away. It is hard to be present with God when you don't understand what's going on, when you don't know what's happening, what the purpose of your trial is, why you have to suffer, the picture isn't clear, everything is dark. Find stillness. Take moments to breathe. Be gentle with yourself and stay calm. Stay with the Lord. Stay in his presence. Stay in deep meditation of the word and deep thanksgiving for Jesus, your Savior. And I really think that if you hunker down, you're going to be okay. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 says this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In the Greek, the word for a little while is oglios, which means a small number, a small amount of time, shortness, or size. Now, would we use this word, a little while, in reference to the flood? All 370 days? Is that short? Absolutely. Because in reference to eternity, we might suffer a little while during our days on earth. But for all of us in Christ, the Lord promises to restore, strengthen, confirm, and establish us after the days of suffering has passed, whether that's on this side of heaven or the next. Stay encouraged, my friends. Stay patient. Stay hopeful. And until next time, remain faithful. If you enjoyed this podcast, we would be grateful if you subscribe to the show so you can be notified when new episodes are released. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find our Instagram page at Remain Faithful Podcast, or you can head over to our website at remainfaithful.org.